Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2174 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 35 on a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And today we continue our series in the good news according to John the Apostle. Now last week... Jesus gave us three words to keep us going when we're in times of hardship and trouble. And those three words were joy, love, and peace. And in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And today our scripture is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. It starts on page 1679 of your pew Bible. And today we'll study what I consider the actual Lord's Prayer. I know we refer to the prayer that we say at the beginning of the service, the Lord's Prayer, but this is the Lord's Prayer. That's more of a disciple's prayer. And Jesus prays for the glorification of his disciples, and he prays for himself in a message titled Divine Intercession. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. In this first section is Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Then we go on to the next section, starting in verse 6, with Jesus' praise for his disciples. I have revealed you to those who you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me comes from you. For For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost, except that one doomed for de- to destruction so the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them the word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is that they... That is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by the truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, 
that they too may be truly sanctified. Now the time that this took place was probably around midnight on that fateful evening before his crucifixion. Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples had been left the upper room and they were they had eaten supper, that last supper we refer to it as, and were taught several lessons by Jesus. Then they headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Perhaps they were in the courtyard below that upper room after descending those stairs. And after Jesus declaring, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I imagine that Jesus allowed a long silence to seal that moment in their hearts. As the warnings and promises of the Lord began to sink into those disciples, I can only imagine the disciples feeling helpless as they stared into that vast expanse of the sky to the stars above. How vulnerable they must have felt, knowing that they would soon be without their master, without their rabbi, who had led them and protected them for these three plus years. Doubtless, few among them could remember a time before Jesus was with them in their lives, when he summoned them to follow and then gave them a purpose for life. After a time of silent reflection, I imagine the words of Jesus, quiet yet resonant, washing over those despairing disciples, enveloping them in a moment before his prayers rose into the heavens. The words of the son addressing his father reminded the men of that void in space is filled completely with the presence of the Almighty. And he would never leave them alone. Now scholars have named this prayer as Jesus' high priestly prayer. But as I say, said, I have another name for it. I think it's the Lord's Prayer. More than the example by which he taught his disciples to pray, that which, which we recite every Sunday. Furthermore, high priestly sounds sort of stuffy, sort of cold to me. Like some pompous guy in a robe gets up here to recite some sort of prayer that doesn't come from the heart. Jesus' prayer pours out of his heart, out of a man who loved his followers, who cared enough to summon the protection of the Almighty God to be around them. With great passion, he prayed first for himself and the success of his mission in verses 1 through 12. Then for the protection of the disciples as they fulfilled their purpose in verses 13 through 19. And then finally, for the generations of believers who would follow him as a result of the disciples' ministry, which we'll look at next week in verses 20 through 26. We go back and start with verse 1 of chapter 17, 1 through 3. The Greek term translated heavens, he looked up into the heavens, could also be the same word for sky. Now contextually, usually the context clarifies what the author intended, but either sky or heaven in this case is appropriate. Jesus and his disciples had parted that, departed that room, and they were making their way to, out of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus used the terms hour and glory, which had a significant impact or a part of John's narrative throughout his entire book, gospel here. Glory refers to the Lord's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, which would vindicate the truth of his teaching and his identity as the Son of God. The hour had been appointed before the beginning of time. They knew this hour would come. It was his destiny to which Jesus had been born. And he even describes it in Daniel chapter 7. However, Jesus didn't focus on the suffering that he was about to endure. Instead, he called attention to the fulfillment of God's plan. 
the glory that the Father would receive and the gift of eternal life for all those he called his own. Jesus defined eternal life as having that relationship with God and his son, the Messiah Jesus. The word know here comes from the Greek word term meaning to understand. Rather than just having a perception or a recognition of it, to know is to fully understand it. The term implies an exchange of ideas and values between two people with a, with a close familiarity. The term describes a relationship like between two of the closest possible friends or between a husband and wife at a married couple where there are no secrets, there's nothing held back. That is the term to know here. Eternal life is not only long life, a life that never ends, but it's also a rich and satisfying life here on earth that John described in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, I give them a rich and satisfying life or an abundant life in some translations. It is a quantity matched with a quality of life. And this satisfaction can be enjoyed only by individuals who fulfill their created purpose. And our created purpose is to glorify God and, and to enjoy him fully. If we go on to verses 4 and 5, Jesus reflected the truth of his identity, recalling how he had come from glory to reflect the glory of the Father here on earth. Then having completed his task, he looked forward to the return back to glory. However, this is not to say that Jesus left his humanity. Instead, he returned to heaven with that resurrection body that he would, stay, would abide in for the remainder of eternity. The very kind of body that we will receive as believers in those last days when Jesus returns to us and we rise up to meet him in our resurrected bodies will be the same type of body that Jesus rose from the grave with. That resurrected body, when he returns to earth to establish his global Eden, God's kingdom. These re words reflect a deep longing that Jesus felt for heaven. Could we say that he was possibly homesick to return back to the glory for which he came? We too easily forget that while Jesus became a man and placed himself in this world through a miraculous birth, he was not of this world. We tend to see everything from our earthly perspective because that's all we know. So we recall his earthly life and appreciate his greatness as a man. And we imagine what a joyful experience the disciples must have had ministering with him, to live with him throughout those three and a half years. But think of what he gave up to take on that human flesh and to suffer the worst kind of humility of the crucifixion on the cross. Think of what he left behind when he departed from heaven and entered into this world, into Bethlehem, into a humble stable with poor parents. And then he would end up leaving the world less than 10 miles away in Jerusalem to be born under such humble circumstances and to suffer such a humiliation of a death. Jesus did not depart this earth in humiliation, though, but in glorifying God. He completed his task and conquered death to depart back to glory from whence he came. As we move on to verses 6 through 8, even the Lord's petition for himself was brief and selfless. He quickly turned the focus of his prayer to the needs of those 11 that were gathered around him and the disciples that would soon lead the rest of the world into this world-changing event. 
While he prays specifically for them, the principles that he prayed for his disciples are applied to all believers from that point forward. Jesus stated that he had revealed the Father to the world. That was his purpose, to reveal the Father to the world in a form of a human. The revelation showed them God's character and his attributes because Jesus was that perfect imager of God. And we are to be imagers of Jesus Christ. The Son not only taught divine truth, but he also represented divine truth in his very presence. To see God, or to see Jesus Christ was to see God because they were one in essence. The Lord identified his followers as those whom you gave me out of this world. And then he expounded on that statement. He says, you give, me, you give them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now this word is the Old Testament for those disciples. God's own were those who remained sensitive to the written word and then obeyed that written word. And when Jesus, the word of God in human flesh, presented himself to the world, his own now became those who received Jesus Christ as their savior. That's what he refers to as his own. Jesus in turn received them. And through prayer, then he officially turned them back over to the Father, vouching for their personal authenticity, saying, Father, these are the holy ones I'm presenting back to you as I leave and complete my mission here. As we move on to verses 9 through 11, Jesus' request begins with the phrase, I pray for them, and then abruptly shifts to who he was not praying for, which is the world, before going into more detail, and then ends with, protect them by the power of your name. The world was not in view here when Jesus was praying. His own were in view. Men and women who had responded to the world, the word in belief, they were no longer identified as the world. Just as the oil floated to the top in that jar, we are to float to the top of this world, but yet permeate the very world that we're part of. Once Jesus ascended to join his father, believers would become citizens of heaven, God's kingdom, and yet we're living in a hostile territory. We are a part of this world, so yes, we are still citizens of this world, but Jesus petitioned his father to protect us, protect those disciples and us, and unify them into one cohesive whole. Now, the verb translated here to protect describes the primary duty of a shepherd, which was to guard and protect those evil influences, those bad influences, whether they be animals or thieves, to protect the sheep. And this is the same term that he used here when he said, Father, protect them. The idea is to keep them separated from the world's dangers, even as they continue to live among their hostile neighbors. Furthermore, the Lord asked the Father to bind the believers together so that they would enjoy the same kind of oneness shared by the persons of the Trinity. And he's telling us to be one as the Trinity is one. As we move on to verses 12 and 13, Jesus grieved leaving his disciples in this world, but he acknowledged that the God's plan, the Father's plan was best for all. Jesus had carefully and faithfully kept them from evil and preserved them up to this point. And then he placed them back into the Father's hand and saying, my mission is done. They are yours. Protect them, Father. Only the one who was doomed for destruction had succumbed to Satan. Now, the phrase doomed for destruction here is a Semitic expression for one who was destined for damnation. 
Of course, Jesus was referring to Judas Iscariot, whom he called a devil in chapter 6, verse 70, who welcomed the idea by allowing Satan to enter him and betraying the Lord in chapter 13, verse 2, and whom Satan literally entered the body of, of Judas in chapter 13, verse 27. Now, Judas had been, not been lost because he never truly believed. He made a choice. As one of the disciples, he made a choice not to believe in the word that God sent in Jesus Christ. That was his choice. He merely occupied a place among the faithful, which was a circumstance predicted by the prophecy in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, and to utilize what Judas did to accomplish God's purpose. Much of the Lord's teaching on that final evening with his disciples would not have a meaning to them at that particular time. However, once those difficult hours in the next couple of days, three days, had passed, and he stood there before them again with his glory in that resurrected body, the disciples would find immeasurable hope in his words. And now 60-some years later, when John was, was writing this narrative out of his, the Gospel of John, John gave preeminence to this final discourse. These final five chapters of John covered just a few days in the course of the, the entire course of his, his Gospel. That was how important John deemed it to believe that this final discourse was so important. As we move on to verses 14 through 16, take a, a note of a sharp distinction between the genuine believers, which he refers to as his own, and the world. The word of God caused this division. The word of God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, drawing the battle lines between those who heed his word, his own, with those who hate his word, the world. The Greek, Greek verb here, misio, means to hate or to detest. And it describes one's choice of giving a priority of one thing over another. Mizio may not involve some sort of intense emotion where that hatred was just bubbling up in a person, but a silent choice to reject the word of God. The universe describes, or John describes the universe as being dualistic here, meaning that there's a sharp division to exist between the good and the evil. God created the world and he pronounced it good in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Sin entered the world through, though, and brought evil and suffering and death. And as a result, the world operated from that point on through Satan's values and opposes God in every, at every level. Consequently, neither side can tolerate the other side for very long. John illustrates the division using opposite images of darkness and light. Whereas light is, darkness cannot exist. Where darkness is, there shall be no light. Think of this bowl. The darkness of this bowl is the dark world. The blackness of the world. But God did not take us out of this world. Instead, he said, I want you to be a light in this world. I want you to shine your light. I hope I don't get anybody eyes. I want you to shine this light in the world. The darkness of the world will be made bright by the light that shines within it. And this is our part as believers. 
Where there is light, darkness cannot exist. Darkness cannot abide with the light. Similarly, people cannot live both in both worlds simultaneously. People who prefer the darkness will not tolerate those who are bringing the light. Interestingly, Jesus did not ask the Father to remove the believers from that dark-oriented world. Instead, he said, Father, preserve the believers from the world's influence governed by Satan. He asked for unity in verse 11 and the preservation from evil in verse 15. And I cannot help but see the relationship between God and the darkness, the contrast of the darkness of the world. John established the connection between unity and protection from evil in a letter to his churches when he wrote, even before his gospel, he wrote these letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And in 1 John chapter 2.19, he says, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged to us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. And he braided those concept, concepts of, of light and love and obedience into a braided cord. He braided light, the belief in the truth of Christ, love, unity among all believers, and obedience, proof of genuine belief. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse says, 12 says, a triple braided cord is not easily broken. And just like I have a braided cord here with three strands in it, the gospel, Christ's message was light and love and obedience. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 17, John wrote again to the churches in Asia Minor, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 15 is a clear description of Jesus' strategy. Jesus never encouraged believers to cloister themselves in the monastery walls, either spiritually or physically. Instead, he wants the world's darkness to be illuminated, illumined not only by heaven, by the sun, but by each of us smaller lights. who were illumining the world, the darkness of the world, by our own lights. We are called to be light to the world. And this is what Jesus was getting across in this. We are to be lights in that dark world. He asked the Father to give us insulation, not isolation. These are the fireplace mitts that I use. They're actually welding gloves that we use to grab a hold of hot embers or hot logs that are in a fireplace. We need to reposition them. I can stick my hand in that fire and not feel a thing. And that's what Jesus said to God, insulate them, not isolate them. I can hold this flame. If I did this on my bare hand, I would get blisters and scorches on my hand, and it would be very painful. But Jesus says, insulate them from the world, that they may not feel the heat, the fire of Satan, that they may be preserved in the world. And that's what God means when he says to insulate those, protect them from the world, but don't take them out of the world at this point because they serve our purpose of building God's kingdom. Insulate believers so they can move amid evil and be without being burnt by that evil one. 
As we move on to verses 17 through 19, Jesus expressed how believers remain unified and preserved from the evil one. And we are set aside, and the word for set aside here is sanctification. It's sort of a big word, but the Greek verb is hegiazo. And it means to dedicate or set aside for a specific use. The practice was common, a common term even used in pagan worship temples, describing the process of something that be, it's being something cleaned and then set aside for a special purpose and use in worship. Something that had been sanctified was considered ceremonially pure, even if they were common utensils. The Jews use this term to reference anything that God reserved for his use. Now, I have just a common bowl here and a wooden spoon, pretty common utensils. But when we are set aside by God, even with that which is common is sanctified, made holy. And the word holy means to set aside. When the scripture says, be holy like I am holy, means you're set aside to do God's purpose, to do God's will. Yes, you might be just a wooden spoon in an old ceramic bowl. But when you're set aside for God's purpose, when you're sanctified, then you become clean and holy because you're being set aside for God. The Holy Spirit sets us aside for a special purpose. And that is to bring a light into the world. Even those pots and those utensils used in the temple of God, used in the most holy place, were not necessarily better or different than other pots and utensils, but they were set aside for God's purpose. And Paul gave this term an even greater personal application because the Holy Spirit dwells within each believer. And as a believer, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We become temples of God. And together, as a church, we are also represented as temple. Paul uses it. In both phrases, we're individually a temple of God and unified, we are a temple representing God. We're no less consecrated than anything that was in that most holy place because we are now holy as God is holy. Jesus used the term more specifically to reference the truth, the divine truth expressed through the Old Testament prophets who faithfully recorded God's revelation. The divine truth of the world had forsaken Adam's sin and continues to reject through ongoing sin. The divine truth embodied in the Son of God. Jesus prayed that his followers would not merely perceive the divine truth, but also acknowledge it. But they would be made clean, and we are made clean by being set apart and made holy for the use of God's word. We're set aside for a special purpose. Sanctification means literally just to set apart. It's not something that will occur overnight. Positionally, we are sanctified. That means before God, we are made holy. But experientially, we become sanctified as the Holy Spirit continues to conform us to his truth. As long as we remain here on earth, that process of sanctification is an ongoing process. If you look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says, pray for one another. And Jesus prayed, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, there's few experiences more humbling, more encouraging than hearing the prayers of someone, another believer on our behalf. When earthly concerns bear us down and, and weigh us down on our shoulders and our, squeeze our temples to where we can't hardly stand it anymore, 
hearing someone carry our burdens to heaven is a feeling it's hard to describe. Because first of all, when we hear others pray for us, as John prayed at the end of the service last week, which was really special, meaningful to me, we feel understood. Because I know that someone empathizes with my struggle and takes it seriously enough to unite God's spirit with mine in seeking God's intervention. We receive confidence when we hear others pray for us. Hearing the intercession of another gives me a reasonable assurance that my prayers are consistent with God's values. It helps us to grow wiser. The prayer of another offers perspectives that we may not have considered. It gives us courage. Someone with more objectivity can pray with greater confidence in the power of the goodness of God, which is always infectious out of us, helps us to see that what we, how we perceive it may be not how God perceives it. And it gives us perspective tying into that. People who aren't caught up in my suffering can better see the struggle from an eternal perspective, which is always helpful. We would need to make it a point, and we do here at Putnam as we pass out the prayer request to our prayer chain, as we bring up prayer requests every Sunday, we share on this. And that's what we, God wants us to do, is to pray for one another. Let others know that you're praying for them, that you're giving them encouragement and strength. Now imagine, though, hearing the Son of God that evening approach His Father on our behalf, Imagine the encouragement, the confidence, the wisdom, the courage, the perspective that we can gain by hearing him interceding for us. A perfect prayer from the lips of a man who was perfect. The Lord gave his disciples a marvelous gift on that eve of his torment. Their preparation for ministry now was complete. He had done all he could do for them. Having consecrated them for ministry, Jesus turned his prayer toward the generations of believers that the 11 disciples are now charged to lead, which we'll get into next week. But what's the application for the passage today? It's on the other side of your bulletin insert. Jesus, in, in the application is prayer and the work of God. Jesus' prayer for himself, his disciples, and the generation of believers to follow underscores three fundamental truths about the relationship between prayer and any God-honoring endeavor, anything that we endeavor to complete, these are the three truths that we must keep in mind. First, prayer helps us to keep God's glory as a priority in every endeavor. Jesus began his prayer by acknowledging the primary purpose of his mission here on earth. As the Son of God, he asked to be glorified, to be vindicated in the sight of all people, of all humanity, as the embodiment of that divine truth, not for his own sake, but that he might reflect that glory back to God, to reestablish that glory he once had before he came to earth. He was taking back that glory to God. When we go to the Father through the Son, asking anything to be accomplished, even the small details of our life, we are wise to acknowledge God's glory as the primary goal of any endeavor that we have here on earth. Whether it's ministry-related here, whether it's passing out glow sticks and, and grab-and-go lunches or meals at Halloween, whether it's helping with the preschool, whether it's helping with the food drive, any ministry 
tasks that we do should reflect glory back to God. When asking for business success, which I've asked thousands of times over the years, let it be to the glory of God. Let it be genuine and not mere lip service. When asking for our ministry to expand here, I know all of us would like to see more people here at Putnam on Sunday. That would be our heart's desire. But if we do that, if we ask, let it be for God's glory and not our own. I would go even further to say, include this in our prayer. And Lord, if it does not bring you glory, please deny my request and then guide us to accomplish your will in your way. The second truth is prayer helps us to remember that any God-honoring endeavor will succeed because of his power and not ours. Jesus accomplished or acknowledged that people came to him because they belonged to God. The Father drew them, Jesus kept them, and he returned them back to the Father. Of course, it's silly to ask whether the Father or the Son was most successful in that case, because they are the same essence. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three persons in one God. However, the Son's prayer that we read today and will continue next week is our example to follow. When we pray, let us subordinate our desires to God's. God's more excellent design. After all, we are part of his redemptive plan, not the other way around. And the third truth that's emphasized here is prayer causes us to look to God for success rather than the world. Jesus acknowledged in his prayer that the world desires what it opposed from God to those that are, are part of the Father. Jesus prayed, in effect, Lord, unify them, preserve them, set them apart, and work through them like a triple braided cord of light and love and obedience. Work through them. Lord, may your, the world assist in accomplishing your plan. And we live in a country where freedom of worship is pretty open for us. The world, in many ways, allows us to continue on with God's mission. But the world isn't the one that we glorify, isn't to be acknowledged for our success. The world in and of itself is not a friend of grace. Therefore, we should expect at times resistance. We've been fortunate to live in a country where many times the good news is allowed to flow freely. Prayer helps us to remember to whom to thank for our success. Even if the world seems to cooperate, it is God who receives the glory. I cannot imagine trying to accomplish any task for the Lord that he's given us apart from prayer. How discouraging to think that he would charge us with changing the world and then leaving us alone. He might as well ask us to dip the oceans dry with a teaspoon because it would be an impossible task. Truthfully, he did not leave us to accomplish God's work, this God-sized task, without divine power. He's allowed the Holy Spirit to indwell within us. Instead, he promised to achieve his work, the work of himself, and he's called us to join him so we might enjoy the spoils of victory when the work is complete, when that global Eden is once again reestablished and heaven and earth are combined and we minister throughout all eternity. That will be the victory for us as we help to build his kingdom. As citizens of God's kingdom, let every goal that we pursue, every prayer that we offer, 
reflect that transforming truth. And everything that we do bring glory to God. And that's what we take from Christ's prayer. Next Sunday, Jesus will continue with the Lord's Prayer in a message titled, When Jesus Prayed for You. So I'd encourage you to read John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we give you the glory for all that you do in our lives. We give you the glory for the blessings you've given each of us, even in times of trial and tribulation where we don't know how to respond, Father. May we as fellow believers encourage and pray for one another to lift them up that we might be unified in our work for you as we help to build your kingdom here on earth that your kingdom may come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Father. We give you the honor, the glory, the praise, and it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.